I told her after this, we'll give her a little break. I think she has uh, earned it. <laughs> Baby comes Monday, and then the, the work begins. So we are we're ready for that, excited, and uh, just looking forward to it. Well, we're glad to be here with you guys tonight. It seems like we are um, on a every other week basis with you guys, uh, but glad to be here with you. Brother Charles is in Colorado. Uh, this is, I believe today is Miss Becky's birthday, and so they are celebrating in Colorado. We'll be back um, suffering in Colorado. Uh, as far as I know, we'll be back by Sunday. So looking forward to having them back. If you have your Bible... We're going to continue on in the book of Ruth. We're going to continue on in the book of Ruth. Hopefully you can remember where we have been. We have covered chapters 1 and chapters 2. Let me give you just a brief uh, summary of where we've been so that the setting will be set for us. In chapter 1, we meet a family. Uh, Father is Elimelech, his wife is Naomi, and they have two boys, and they live in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. The problem is, however, that God has sent a famine to Bethlehem, and uh, they're just in a tough spot. And so Elimelech is looking at his, his wife and his boys, and he's not sure what to do, but he ends up leaving Bethlehem and taking his family to Moab. Now, when you look in the Old Testament, you see that the Moabites are the people against God. So Elimelech takes his family, and they leave the people of God, they leave the place of God, they, they leave the provision of God, and they go out to the enemies in Moab. The Bible says that they go to sojourn, they go to take a little trip, they go to take a quick journey in Moab, but they end up staying how long? Ten years. They go for 10 years, and they are in Moab. While they are in Moab, all the men in the family pass away. Uh, Malon, Kilion, and Elimelech all pass away. We're not sure what happens. The Bible doesn't tell us the details, but all the men die in Moab. Just remember, sin will always keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. And so this family is in a very tough spot. All that's left is Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. Finally, Naomi hears word that the Lord has visited Bethlehem. Things are better in Bethlehem. And so they begin to make the journey from Moab back to Bethlehem. Along the way, Naomi pleads with these two young women to stay in Moab. We're not real sure why she did that. Maybe she was looking after their best interest. Maybe she was ashamed to bring these Moabite women into Bethlehem, but she is pleading with them to stay. Orpah goes back, and then we see where Ruth says, I'm committed to you. I'm staying with you. I am not leaving your side. And so we see at the end of chapter 1 where Naomi and Ruth come back into Bethlehem. Naomi says, extra credit here, she says, don't call me Naomi, but call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, I am bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. I'm in a tough spot. I'm angry. I'm resentful. I'm not happy. Just go ahead and call me Miss Bitter because that is what I am. But chapter 1 ends, and it says that it is, what is it? Harvest season, Remember? 
Chapter 1 ends, and it ends the chapter by saying that harvest season is on the horizon. Harvest season means there's a fresh start. It means there's a new beginning, and it implies that God is about to show up in a big way, and he is going to work in their lives. And that is exactly what God is in the process of doing. Chapter 2, we see where Ruth goes out into the fields. She's trying to go out into the fields and find some grain and find some food. And the Bible says that she just so happened, like it's a coincidence, it's not a coincidence, it's the providence of God, it just so happens that Ruth ends up in the field of Boaz. And so while she's at the field, she's going behind the harvester. She's picking up the grain. And then the Bible says that Boaz just so happened to stop by his field. And he's checking on the work, checking on his workers, dealing with his foremen. And all of a sudden, this young lady catches his eye, and he begins to ask questions about Ruth. He ends up discussing, talking with Ruth, providing for Ruth, making sure that she is sent back home with plenty of food. And so the relationship between Boaz and Ruth begins in chapter 2. And that leads us to chapter 3 where we are uh, this evening. Ever since Boaz came into the life of Ruth, Naomi has been a different person. In chapters 1 and chapters 2, we see that she is bitter, that she is outside the will of God, that she is angry. She seems to be depressed, and we can understand why she probably would be depressed. She's going through a very difficult time. But in chapter 3, we see some new life into Naomi. Her concern is no longer for herself in her grief, but now she is concerned with Ruth and her future. When they came into Bethlehem, the plan was to somehow just eke out an existence. Just try to get by day by day for these two women. But with Boaz in the picture, Naomi now has hope. Hope is a beautiful thing, isn't it? When there's hope, it changes everything. And so Naomi's whole outlook, her whole attitude begins to change because Boaz represents hope in her life and in the life of Ruth. And so Naomi begins to make preparations for Ruth. During this day, the parents would often facilitate the wedding. They would come to another set of parents and they would bring a wedding they would plan a wedding uh, far out in the future and so in chapter three we see where Naomi begins to make preparations for what she hopes and believes will be a wedding between Ruth and Boaz Ruth longs for a deeper relationship with Boaz now remember two weeks ago we were studying, and we saw how Boaz is a type of Christ. In Boaz, we see a type of Christ and how Christ relates to his children. And so we're going to look at the same thing this evening. How do we prepare for a deeper relationship with God? How do we prepare if we're in here this evening and we say, what I really want what I really desire is a deeper relationship with God. I want to give you some principles this evening of how we can reach that. Look at Ruth chapter 3, and let's read verses 1 through 5. It says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, 
my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See how he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. There were other men that Ruth could have followed, but they could not have redeemed her. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. And so Naomi instructs Ruth to go and to seek out Boaz. Along the way, she told her several things you probably know, especially in verse 3, instructed her in what to do. The first thing she instructed was to wash herself. Did you catch it? She said, go and cleanse yourself. In the law of Moses, there were ceremonial washes before a special event, especially before a wedding. Uh, you were instructed to cleanse yourself. If you wanted to go into a special event, you would make sure you were clean. We do that today, don't we? You're going to a nice dinner. You're going to a special event. You're going to a wedding. You make sure that you are clean. And so that was uh, a prerequisite for Ruth going to Boaz. Can I just remind you, for us to have a deeper relationship with God, we must make sure that we are clean. We must make sure that there is no sin in our life. We must make sure that there is no iniquity within us. 2 Corinthians 7, it says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes cease to do evil. We see that we seek God for forgiveness and God washes us clean, but God will not do for us what we must do for ourselves. There's times in life that we are the ones who must clean out our life. And that could be many, many different things for each and every one of us. It could be that in your life as you go home, You've got some things on your DVR, your recording device on your television, and they don't honor God. And you know that. Now, by the standards of culture, they're fine. By culture, there's nothing wrong with them. But as you watch that show week after week after week, you catch yourself giggling at things that God takes no pleasure in. You catch yourself laughing at things that do not honor God. And if you're honest with yourself tonight, if the Lord was in the flesh and he was sitting on the couch beside you, there's no way you would have that on the television. I'm telling you, there are things that we must cleanse from our life. It could be a bad attitude. You ever just get in a rut with a bad attitude? I do that from time to time. Just get down, just get in a bad attitude. You know what I've found? I've found that one of the ways you can tell if someone is walking with the Lord is that they will be joyful. I just believe that. I believe that when we're walking in fellowship with the Lord, there will be a joy on our face. There will be a peace about us. And even in the midst of bad circumstances, we will show and shine forth the glory of God on our life. 
And so it could be that there's just a, an evil attitude within us sometimes, and we need to get that cleansed from our life. It could be a thought pattern, a thought process. There's things going on in our mind, and you say, well, case nobody knows about that. God does. God knows. He knows everything you think. He knows everything that comes in, that head of yours, that mind of yours, every activity that you play out. God sees it. He knows it. He's aware of it. And if there is sin in our thought life, it will separate us from the things of God. For us to dive into a deeper relationship with God, number one, we must be clean. You might be here, and if you're honest, you might say, I just feel so distant from God. You ever felt that way? You might say, I just feel like God doesn't hear me. I feel like when I pray, God does not listen. You know what Isaiah 59, 2 says? It says, your iniquities have separated you from God. It says, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Do you get that? If there's sin in our life, it means that we are separated from God. We're running away from God, and he will not hear us. And so if you feel like God is, is not listening to you, first place I would look is to see if there is sin in my life. Is there sin actively in your life? James 4, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love it. It's a promise. Resist the devil, and what's going to happen? He'll flee from us. Draw near to God, and what's going to happen? He'll draw near to us. It doesn't say sometimes. It doesn't say this might happen. It, it's very simple. It's very easy in the text. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I read a story a while back. <clears throat> there was a lady, and she had a pet snake. Now, that doesn't do anything for me. I like to kill every snake I come across, but this lady had a snake, and she loved the little snake. She got it when it was a baby snake, and she let that snake just slither all over the house. And the snake grew, and it grew, and it grew. And the snake grew to six feet, seven feet long. It was a, a massive, massive snake. But she noticed that the snake quit eating. She would try to feed the snake, and the snake wouldn't eat. And so she began to be concerned about her little snake. And so she went to the vet one day, and she was uh, speaking to the vet. <clears throat> and she said, Doctor, my, my snake has quit eating. And so he, he began to ask some questions. And he said, has the snake been uh, sleeping with you in your bed? And she said, well, doctor, how did you know that? Every night the snake has been coming up in my bed, and it's the sweetest thing. The snake will just cuddle right up against me. All down my body, that snake will be all against me. And that's what's got me so sad because I love this snake. It, it cuddles with me every night and just a, a glorious snake. And the doctor looked at the woman and said, Lady, your snake is not sick. Your snake is starving itself to make room to eat you. Your snake is sizing you up every night, seeing how long it is compared to your body, trying to make room to swallow you whole. 
lady, you must destroy that snake. I think it's interesting because of this. I don't know if that's a true story or not. I, you know, preachers make up a lot of stuff and find stuff and just use it. But it makes a good point, doesn't it? There are times in life that we've got this sin, and it's just a little snake. And we think that we can control it. It's just a little snake. Anytime I want to, I can kill this snake. But we grow attached to it, don't we? A little sin, we just grow attached to it. And before we know it, that sin is getting larger, it's getting larger, and it's getting larger, and we still think we can control it. We still think that it's okay. We still think we have no problem, but if we're not careful, it's going to destroy us. Haven't you seen it? Haven't you seen where sin has come in and totally destroyed a life? Sin in our life will destroy us. And Satan will use it, and he won't start off with a big snake, because that's scary. He'll start off with a little bitty snake that we can control and that will not worry us too badly. In the Old Testament, the priest, when they came into the presence of God, they had to make sure they were clean. Otherwise, they would die. When the Jewish people came into the presence of God, they would make sure they were clean and they were holy because God demanded such. But today, Christians come into the presence of God and we make no preparations. And then we wonder why it seems as though there's no power of God in our services. We wonder why we come and we can do the same thing week after week after week and just leave the same, but we make no preparations to come into the presence of God. The Lord is worth us cleansing ourselves. The Lord is worth us looking at our, our life and saying, Lord, would you wash me? Lord, would you cleanse me? David said this in Psalm 51. It's a beautiful example. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I just feel that he's, he's crying out to God. Don't you feel that? He's broken over the sin in his life. Remember in the Beatitudes where it says to be poor in spirit? You know what that means? It doesn't mean that we walk around all, all mopey. That's not what it means. It means we realize how broken we are and that we are in need of the forgiveness of God. It goes on and says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. It means we look in our life and we say, this does not glory God, glorify God. This does not honor God. I am hungering and thirsting for more. Lord, I want your righteousness on my life. It means that we cannot be complacent with sin. It means that we cannot just shrug our shoulders and say sin is no big deal because it is always a big deal in our life. So she goes to Boaz and she's instructed to cleanse herself. The next thing is she is instructed to anoint herself. You see it there in verse 3, to anoint herself. Uh, these eastern people would use fragrant oils to protect, to heal, and to use as a fragrance. But did you realize that in the Bible, oil is often symbolic of what? The Holy Spirit. Oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And so not only are we to cleanse ourselves, but we're to make sure that we have the oil of the Holy Spirit upon us in our life. 
2 uh, Corinthians says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. It means that we have the Holy Spirit within us, and so as we go through life, the Lord smells us, the fragrance, the aroma, and he is pleased by our life. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, if God were to take the Holy Spirit out of this world, much of what the church is doing would go right on and no one would know the difference. Isn't that true? We just keep on going. We've got all the programs mapped out, all the resources mapped out. We can serve the Lord without an unction from the Holy Spirit living within us. But that is not what God wants. When you read the Gospels, you will see that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. Are you led by the Holy Spirit in your life? What did you do this week that demanded the Holy Spirit? What have you done this week that required the Holy Spirit? If it wasn't the Holy Spirit, it would not have happened. You remember what Jesus said when he was going into heaven? He said, it's to your advantage that I go away, because if I do, I will send you a paracletos. It means a helper. It means a counselor. It means the Holy Spirit. I will send you the Holy Spirit, and he will not just be with you. What will he be? He'll be in you. He will be in you. Up until this point, if you had a question, you would have to go and find Jesus. But he says, it's to your advantage that I go away because you don't have to find me any longer. You'll have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit won't just be amongst you. The Holy Spirit will indwell inside of your life. The Holy Spirit will be there to convict you of sin. Listen, if you're doubting your salvation, one of the ways that you can have assurance is when you feel the conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit. When you do something wrong and all of a sudden you just feel terrible about it. That's a good time to feel terrible, isn't it? There is conviction from the Holy Spirit that is pressing in on your heart. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will guide us, will direct us. Do you feel that in your life? The Bible says the Holy Spirit will remind us of scriptures. Remind us of teachings. Remind us of the things of God. Does the Holy Spirit do that in your life? I think one of the largest problems that we have is that we are not tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. We're trying to do things on our own power and our own abilities. Maybe it's just the culture that I was raised in, but in my life, I rely upon Google way too much. There's really very little that I can do because I rely on Google so much. When I'm going down the road and I don't know where I'm going, you know what I do? I go to Google. Google, how do I get to such and such address? I don't need a map. I just need Google. When I want to know what the weather's going to be, is it going to be cold again tomorrow? I go to Google. When something's broke and I need to know how to fix it, what do I do? I go to Google. Google can just about tell me anything that I want to know. I've got the, the resource right there on my phone. I can go to it anytime, and I use it. If I'm doing a, a math problem, I'm going to use a calculator. It's the tool that I need. I'm going to tap into the power that's available to me. But so many times as believers, we've got the power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, and we don't ever use it. We pretend it's not there. We, we ignore it. 
We go through life on our own power and on our own ability. And what we need is to use the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Maybe you're going through life and there's a sin you keep struggling with. Maybe you can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can. Maybe you're going through life and you feel like you have no purpose. Let the Holy Spirit guide you and direct you. Maybe, maybe you don't know what to do. Let the Holy Spirit work in your life. Maybe you say, well, I'm not doing much for the kingdom of God. If you follow the Holy Spirit, you will. Next thing we see is that she was told to change her clothes. Look at the end of verse 3. Now, depending on your translation, some translations speak of an outer garment, and some translations speak of a, a whole new set of clothes. The point is the same either way. She is going to change clothes, probably put on some nice clothes, before she goes and meets up with Boaz. It's a special time, and so she needs to look the part. She's cleansed. She smells good now, and now she needs some new clothes on. You know, in the Bible, there's a lot of times that clothes represent a deeper spiritual meaning. The Bible talks about as we come into the presence of God all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? It's filthy. We must come through Jesus Christ and through the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Uh, it goes on in Ecclesiastes. It says, let your garments be always white. Let no oil be lacking on your head. And so we come to the Lord not based upon what we've got, not based on what we can offer or what we can do, but we come to the Lord based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do so, we have his righteousness imputed upon us, and then we are white and righteous because on our own we are filthy. And so she changed clothes. Finally, we see in verse 5 that she says, All that you say to me, I will do. In other words, she is obedient, right? All that you've told me to do, Naomi, I will do that. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to follow you. Whatever you laid out for me, that's what I'm going to do. You know what she was? She was not one just to talk, but she was one of action. What we need to be is a people of action. Because I've learned this. We're really good at talking. Amen? And we can talk with the best of them. And we do lots of it. We come and we talk when we preach, and we go to our small groups and we talk some more. We come on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, and we talk and we talk and we talk about all the ways that we can honor God and all the things that we can do and all the things that we should do. And I'm just wondering, when does the action come into play? When do we begin to be the people that put this book into our heart and we begin to live it out? Ruth said, what you've told me to do, I'm going to put it into action. 1 John 5, 3, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not a burden. It's not that we wake up and we say, goodness, I've got to follow the Lord today. We want to be obedient. We want to follow his commands. All right, let's keep going. I don't want to lose you. We won't be a whole lot longer. Look at verses 6 through 9. You listen good, and we'll try to end, end soon. Verses 6 through 9, and I want you to see that not only did Ruth make preparations, but she also submitted to Boaz. 
It says, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. The harvest season was a joyous occasion in this day. In our world, we don't, we don't see all the work that goes into bringing food to our table, but it's quite a process. And this day, the men would go, and they would go to the threshing floor. The threshing floor would be a raised platform right outside of the village. And so the men would come, and they would bring their bundles to the threshing floor. When they got their bundles up, they would bring in an ox, or they would just beat it, and they would begin to beat their bundles. And so they'd be working, and they'd be knocking this stuff around. And then after that was done, they would pick it up and throw it up into the sky. And there would usually be an evening breeze, an evening wind. And the wind would take the husk away, and the grain would fall back down. And so they would do this over and over and over again, working hard day, hour after hour after hour, throwing it up into the air and letting the breeze take the bat away until all that was left was the grain. And then they would either store that grain when it was all done or they would take it to the market to sell it. This may take several, several evenings as the wind would come in. And so while they were working, many times they would sleep right there on the threshing floor in order to save their goods. They would protect their goods. And so Boaz is here. His men have been working. Maybe he's been working. And he is sleeping here on the threshing floor. He's sleeping. And all of a sudden, Ruth comes and lays down towards his feet. It doesn't make sense to us, but what she's doing in this culture is she is proposing marriage. It's a big step, but she's coming and she is proposing marriage to Boaz. Now you may say, well, why did she not wait on the man to do this? Why did she not wait on Boaz? We don't know for sure. It seems earlier on we see that Boaz believed that Ruth would go after a younger man. And so maybe he thought he was, he was too old. Maybe he thought he was out of the picture. We see later on, I believe it's in verse 12, where there was a closer kinsman redeemer. And he knows this. You know what that means that he knows this? He's already studied it. He's already checked it out. From chapter 2, when he saw this woman and he began to like this woman, maybe it was love at first sight, he's already gone and done the homework and found out who she is and who's the next closest kinsman. And so in verse 12, he says, wait a minute, there is a closer kinsman. He says, I, I, I want to help you, but there's someone else who has the right first. It had to be a scary moment for Ruth. She sees Boaz and she likes Boaz. She, maybe she loves Boaz at this point. This is the one that she wants to be with. And he says, wait a minute, there's another one that has the first shot. And can you imagine as he wakes up and he finds this woman at his feet? 
it was a bizarre moment, but he didn't run away from it, did he? He was, he was there, he listened, he paid attention to the situation. When she introduces herself, earlier on she is Ruth the Moabite, but in this context it says that she is Ruth the servant of Boaz. You know what that means? Her mindset has changed. No longer does she see herself as the Moabitess. That's in her past. She's not worried about the past any longer. Now as she looks, she is Ruth the servant of Boaz. She sees herself as under the wings of God. God has provided. God has brought her to this point, And now she's longing for the day that she is under the wings of Boaz. Remember, Boaz means strength. It means this is a strong man. Elimelech, in chapter 1, he's weak. He, he, he's nothing to write home about. Boaz is a strong man, and she is longing to be under the care and under the watch of Boaz. Uh, let's just finish up, read one more text, and we'll be done. Where were we? Let's see. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in morning, if he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Let's just close right here. You know what he tells her? He says, I'm going to take care of this situation. That's what he says. He says, listen, I'm going to see to it. I'm going to see to it. But the problem is there is a redeemer who is nearer than I am. But I can, I can give you my word. I'm going to make sure that you're taken care of. And she is there. She lies until morning. He sends her away. And then you know what she does? She goes back and she has to just wait. You know what she's doing? She is trusting the word of Boaz. You know, a word is only as good as the one who gives it. There are people who talk to me, and they can give me their word. They can give me their promise. They can give me a swear, but it doesn't mean anything because their word is not good. You know people like that? It doesn't matter what they say because they're not people of integrity. But there's others when you tell me something's going to get done, I know it's done. I can just count it as done because you are a person, a man, a woman of integrity, and your word means something. Boaz says, you just mark it down. I'm going to take care of this. What are you to do? You're just going to wait. Trust me and wait. Trust me that I'm going to take care of it, and you go and you just wait on me. Sometimes the hardest thing is to wait, isn't it? I'm not patient. I hate waiting in line. I hate waiting at restaurants. I just hate to wait. In our spiritual life, sometimes that's hard to do also, isn't it? There are things that we pray about and we seek after. Lord, would you work here? Lord, would you do this? And there comes a point that all we can do is trust God. Trust his word. Trust what he has spoken to us. And then just wait. It's a hard thing to do, but sometimes that is the best thing.
And so we see where uh, she goes and Boaz begins to work. And we'll see what happens in our next time together. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for uh, this evening, God. Lord, thank you for um, the passage we've studied tonight. Thank you for the picture of Ruth and of Boaz. Lord, the picture of you that we see in Boaz, how he loved Ruth, how he took care of Ruth, how he met the needs of Ruth, how he looked after Ruth. Lord, we know that you do those same things for us. Lord, I pray that we will make preparations to be in your presence. Lord, I pray that we will cleanse ourselves of any sin that we have in our life. Lord, I pray that we will live by the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that our clothes will be white as we seek your forgiveness and as we live in your righteousness. And Lord, I pray that we will be a people of obedience. And God, that we will trust you in our life. Lord, to be a follower of yours, a disciple of yours, means that we trust you no matter what. And so, Lord, may we be men and women who trust you. Lord, we pray for all the ministries going on tonight. Pray that your will will be done. Pray for our pastors. He's away that you will give them a, a good trip. Let them to come back refreshed and ready to serve you. And we thank you for all these men and women, these families here this evening, God. Took time to come out and study your word. I pray that you'll bless them in a great way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, thank you for being here with us. Hopefully you picked up a, a prayer sheet as you came in. I know there's lots of sickness, lots of things going on, so be sure to pray for those. Is there any other prayer request that uh, is not on the sheet that we can add to it? All right. Maybe we got them all that we know of, so that's, that's good. Well, thank you for being here. You're dismissed. Have a great evening. We'll see you back on Sunday, okay? <laughs>